0: Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode. I was very, very poor for the first few years because
1: we just, you know, sort of only ever lived on what profit the business could deliver. That's, I guess sort of the discipline that bootstrapping teaches you is to, to look at every single expenditure going okay, how is this going to add value? And if it isn't, then you don't spend it.
0: At just 21, Kate Morris had an idea to solve a problem she recognised while working part-time as a cosmetic sales girl behind the beauty counter at Meyer. While she loved the industry, she felt many women customers were far from loving the shopping experience of buying makeup and skincare in a department store. In short, Kate saw the vibe, as she puts it, was intimidating, even soul-destroying for customers. So Kate came up with a disruptive solution, offering beauty brands and products online. Adore Beauty online store was born in 1999. Now remember, Kate, who grew up in Tasmania, was just 21 years old and she wanted to start up pretty much Australia's first online beauty store. The dot-com bust was still just a year away. Yet 21 years later, in late 2020, in the midst of a tough Melbourne lockdown, Kate Morris floated her adore beauty on the Australian Stock Exchange. It was described by one newspaper as one of the hottest listings of the year. In part one of our chat, let's hear how Kate backed herself and built an empire. Kate Morris, welcome to Build It Thou Come. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, Thank you so much for having me, Helen. Look, it's a great pleasure to talk to you. You've had such a busy, well, you've probably had a busy two decades, but you've certainly had a busy last six months. But we'll get to your float on the... Australian Stock Exchange later in the podcast. (laughs) But you started Adore Beauty, what, just over two decades ago in 1999 in a suburban garage in Melbourne, you know, the proverbial. You were very young. Yeah, you were very young. Tell us how you came up with this idea to have an e-commerce business selling beauty products online. And was that the original idea?
1: Yes, it was the original idea. Actually, it was it was really funny. I was doing a bit of a clean out of my desk before all this COVID stuff hit and came across the original business plan. I just sort of had a bit of a nostalgia folder of all the old stuff. And it was surprising how relevant and accurate that original 1999 business plan really still was. And, and really what it was all about or where it came from was I'd been working in the beauty industry that was like my uni job <laughs> to pay the rent so I would work you know Friday nights and weekends on the Clarence counter actually. Really and, on the Clarence
0: uh, counter what in or That's
1: right well they used to send me around to different stores so I was what was called a promotional demonstrator and so they'd send me in to fill in you know run the run those sorts of you know makeup promotions and be the one standing there you know, back when they used to do such things, you know, with there on the on the dais and and with a microphone and explaining to people how to, you know, demonstrating makeup or demonstrating yes. skincare that kind of thing. So I loved it. I thought it was just the most fun job ever. But I think the thing that kind of made me sad about it was that most of the customers that came into department stores did not love it quite so much, and they found that experience very daunting and. And a bit scary and I could understand why because you know as sales assistants we all had our sales targets and and I think the vibe of the beauty industry back then and and you know in a lot of ways can can still be but you know let's pressure women into buying things by making them feel bad about themselves and (laughs) yeah and so you feel my way yeah
0: you felt you were intimidating women
1: I think that was the experience that a lot of people had. I think that was the way it was set up because mm. there's you know, you had these counters that we had to stand behind and so a customer had to walk up and really have to kind of ask permission to be able to buy a beauty product and if they were only buying the cleanser, well we were supposed to sell them the toner and and none of it was actually really geared around, hey, actually let's help try and connect customers with the products from right across the floor that they are going to absolutely love and actually let's help them feel good about themselves like none of it was really ever geared towards that and to me that was just really sad because from my way of thinking that's the whole point of beauty products right like it should be the thing that makes you feel confident and fabulous when you step out the front door every morning and and i felt that women should be able to engage with the beauty category. You know, And for them to be the ones actually in control of that experience and for that to be an empowering experience, and that was just not the case. Mm. And this was sort of, this was very, very, very like sort of around the first dot-com boom and, and pre the first dot-com crash and yeah. became aware of online shopping. And there wasn't a lot of it in, in Australia, so it was kind of watching something that was happening overseas. And I just remember thinking to myself, gosh, someone really needs to do this in the beauty category because – I think this would work a lot better for a lot of people and there wasn't anybody doing it.
0: Yeah, so Kate, there wasn't anyone doing it you say in Australia. So you actually thought e-commerce first rather than oh look, I could have my own little beauty store like a a clinic but selling different products. It was never a bricks and mortar idea?
1: No, it wasn't. No, it was actually always it was always online first because I thought if you do a store, I mean that's that's one thing, but then you're always going to be very limited in the number of customers you can bring this experience to. And I was, I grew up in Tasmania and I'd had had the experience of what it's like to live somewhere where you can't necessarily get everything. And, and I think Really, what I wanted to do was change things for the women of Australia, not just the women of a particular suburb. So yeah, it was always online first.
0: So let's just pursue this idea a bit further. I mean, you probably could have had a great, well-paid career staying at Clarence. Never considered that? Uh, I don't know if it would have been well paid.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, that was, that, was it. And that was kind of my thinking at the time because I'd sort of floated around at university, not really knowing what I wanted to do. I got into law and did that for a whole week before, <laughs> you know, it just became clear to me very quickly that this was not what I wanted to spend my life doing. And so just kind of floated around studying some things that I thought were interesting, but not really knowing what I wanted to do, but really loving the beauty industry. And thinking, well, could there be a career for me here? And it's it's the sort of industry where you know a lot of promotion tends to be through seniority. And yeah. I thought, gosh, I'm not going to I'm not going to get anywhere, and it's going to take forever. And and just thought, and I'd never actually thought in terms of career aspiration, hey, I want to be an entrepreneur. Like that Mm. was never a thought that entered my head. Mm. So it was really only more in the sense of how can I solve this problem for customers that I came to the idea of Adore Beauty.
0: Yeah. So how did you then actually make that leap into an online business yourself?
1: Well, it was myself and, and my boyfriend at the time yeah. um, who is, is still now my partner and we have two kids and, you know, we're still in the business together. But, you know, we would sort of talk about this idea and talk about it and talk about it and talk about it. And in the end, one day he sort of looked at me and said, well, look, you know, are you going to do this or what? And that was kind of the light bulb moment that, you know, I thought actually, yeah, we should give this a crack.
0: So he was always really supportive. Was he going to be involved from the get-go?
1: So he was involved from the get-go but not working in it from the get-go because we couldn't really afford right. for both of us to to be doing that. So he went on and he actually finished his law degree and <laughs> went on and and sort of had other jobs for a little while before the business was big enough to be able to support us yes. both. So at the start it was just me in the garage and it was it was about doing that first business plan and and thinking about okay what is the minimum that we would need in terms of money to be able to get this off the ground and i thought well we're going to need a website and we're going to need some product and we actually went and pitched his dad who ran a motel near the airport at the time and he was the only business person i knew And, you know, so I think there were a couple of initial conversations with the bank, which I could see pretty quickly were not going to go anywhere.
0: Did they show you the door fairly quickly?
1: Oh, well, it was more, look, I mean – and if you see it from their perspective, here's a 21 year old with no business experience wanting to come in and start Australia's first online beauty store, like in a business that doesn't even exist. I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> from their perspective, it probably didn't seem like a slam dunk. So, which I, I guess
0: I can understand. No, that. extraordinary vision you had, Kate. I mean, it's amazing. Sorry. So, continue how you actually then sold his dad
1: well we we had sort of started talking to him about it and he said oh well look you know if you want to write up this business plan then i'll i'll take a look and so we did that and 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 what did the business
0: plan say
1: it was basically talking about and the really fundamental thing was you know what was what was the mission what was what was the vision here and even back then it was about how can we make the beauty shopping experience better for customers Mm. so that they can find the right products and that they can feel confident and smart about their decisions. That was always what it was right from the get go. And, you know, we were going to build this amazing online store and customers would come and, you know, we'd sort of thought through the unit economics and how much we would need to charge for postage and all of this kind of stuff i think probably the thing that it was really missing was a marketing strategy so that was <laughs> that was kind of the first thing that we discovered was that once you build a website i think we just sort of assumed that if we if we built it yeah. they would come yes no no that's not what happened
0: <laughs> so what did happen you you spent how much did you get from this is your husband james's father
1: Yes, well, we're not married, but yes. So, this is James's dad. And so, how much did you get for that first funding from him? We, we borrowed $12,000. Wow. So, that was a loan a two year term and, you know, an interest and everything. Yep. So, it was, it was proper. It was just that, well, we couldn't get that from the bank. So, and the most fabulous thing about that actually was when he handed us over the cheque because, of course, it was a cheque back then. <laughs> of course. Like and he said, well, you know what? Good luck. This is going to be a really good experience for you guys. And I've, I look back on that now and I think, what an amazing thing to kind of give us permission to fail in that way. Yeah. Like, he really just wanted us the experience and fully expected to lose the dough, which was a big thing for, you know, someone who wasn't, you know, it wasn't like he was super rich and, and had money to burn, you know, just running a little motel in the suburbs. Mm. But I think what, what a gift to allow us to fail in that way. Mm. And, we, you know, we did it. We paid back the loan.
0: but Quite extraordinary. Yeah, it really is. So you, you paid someone to do your website. You didn't actually do it in the early days. And, and what, you bought a couple of products, a lot of products? So yes, we did pay
1: someone to do the website and it was it was actually a lot harder then than it is now. I mean, now you can get things like, you know, Shopify or whatever and yeah. be set up in five minutes. Back then, everything had to be built from scratch. So I think the website cost us about $8,000. And so then I thought, okay, right, well, we've got 4000 left over to buy some stock. But then the problem I started running into was that none of the brands actually wanted to be on my, my revolutionary online store. Right. Yes, yeah, so that was that was kind of the next hurdle was trying to find anyone who would actually sell me their product, which for me was a bit mind blowing because I, I thought, well, I'm actually I'm offering you money to buy mm. product, and I'd, so I didn't really understand the part about the beauty industry where actually brands are very p- protective mm. of where they're sold, and what I was asking them to do was to disrupt their entire business model that had worked very well for them for the last you know fifty years. And they were not so keen mm. on the internet.
0: So how many products did you get? And and can you remember the feeling of sort of doing the deal to get the first few products?
1: I can remember, um, and this is hilarious, I can remember thinking, gosh, you know, maybe it's, maybe I need to try and sort of present more professionally. So I actually bought a suit It was probably from an op shop or something just to try and look more impressive i think it probably just ended up making me look even younger but it was me sort of driving around in this in this suit in you know a crummy ancient car and sort of begging and and it was in the end it was two very tiny australian brands that said yes initially and neither of them are unfortunately around anymore oh but that was that was sort of the two little brands that I was able to get. So it was maybe, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 products. But that was enough to at least get a website built and then I could kind of go back to everybody else and show them, you know, here's my website, here's how it looks, here's the products, blah, blah, yeah. blah. And then
0: so five how more brands. Did, how did you get people to come to your website? This is new in Australia anyway, to have an e-commerce beauty shop. How did you get people to come and how long did it take before somebody actually bought the first product?
1: Oh, you know, I actually can't remember how long it took before I got my first real customer as in someone that I didn't
0: know. <laughs> someone you didn't force to sure buy. Pretty sure my were all
1: from, you know, family and friends who just kind of felt sorry for me.
0: Yeah.
1: Which, you know, I was very grateful for their support and still am. Oh gosh, look, it was a really, it was actually a slog because there was not, you know, there wasn't social media in the mm. sense that we know it now. There were news groups, so like a bulletin board kind of things. So, and I used to hang out on one of those, it was called alt.fashion and had a lot of, had a lot of Americans actually, who were just sort of fascinated by the different products that we had on our site. Cause they were local brands. It was products that they hadn't seen. And I think the dollar was at 52 cents at that point. Mm. So a lot of my first customers were actually international. Mm. Look, it, was just, it was just a bit of an uphill slog. And so that was really where I guess what I was really dependent on because I didn't have any money in my budget left over for any kind of marketing. I was very dependent on word of mouth. Mm. And so I, my, my constant thought was always how can I make this customer experience so great that, People want to tell each other about it, and that someone, you know, sitting, opening a parcel in the office might show the person next to them. And so, you know, I was wrapping the products in tissue paper, and that was where it was kind of where our, our tradition of, you know, putting a chocolate in the order started. So, back in the, those early days, it was a furry friend. Do you remember, do you remember furry friend? I do. Just a little slab of chocolate, really, that's got like a picture of a native animal on it. And, yeah. and the Americans love those but they were a bit too melty and so over the years we (laughs) ran into the the Tim Tam that everybody knows us for now.
0: So that's a fantastic idea. It's so simple. Do you still pack Tim Tams in your packages? We do. We go through a lot of things. <laughs> hopefully, they arrive on pallets now. Well, hopefully, not too many past your lips. You're probably a little bit sick of them by now, but you know, I just a sim- a bit <laughs>
1: sick of the can't really face them anymore.
0: <laughs> but what a great, simple, but really thoughtful idea for somebody buying a beauty product.
1: Well, for me, it was just about, I mean, this this product is actually, and I've always believed that beauty is actually self-care and it's much less about how it makes you look and much more about how it makes you feel. And so what did I want customers to feel when they got their order from Adore Beauty? I wanted them to feel, you know, happy and surprised Mm. and like this was a treat. Mm. And I guess that's kind of where it came from and it just stuck because I think that was how it made people feel was that the person on the other end of this cared about them and wanted
0: them to have a good day. Yeah. Kate, can we just step back one more bit? Because, I mean, Mm -hmm. had you done any market research, apart from you loving the beauty industry and loving You know, helping women find products, even though you felt that the department store experience was an intimidating experience. But had you Mm -hmm. done any market research? Did you know if there was any online demand? Did you know how to run a business or have any tech experience?
1: None of the above, (laughs) Helen. Did not know. Anything about what I was doing, I did not have any tech experience. I mean, I'd, I'd studied, you know, information systems and and all of that sort of stuff at at school, and had done a little bit of programming at school, and you know, and I'm reasonably sort of technologically capable. But I ended up having to teach myself a little bit of coding, like just a, a bit of HTML and mm. and. FTP and that sort of thing, just out of books and from online because once I'd paid someone all my budget to build the website, then I realised I actually didn't have any money left over for them to make any changes for me. So I realised if I wanted to be able to update the homepage or anything like that, I was going to have to figure out how to do it myself.
0: Wow. So I did. Okay, so you just had a belief that this would work as a 21-year-old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So was anyone overseas doing what you envisioned? I mean, Sephora, the giant French beauty store, started in Paris in the early 70s and they had expanded there. They hadn't come to Australia yet at that stage. But, you know, Joe Horgan had opened Mecca Cosmetica, I think mm-hmm. the first store in Melbourne in 1997. But were they yeah. going online? Well, you not know, really, no, no, not back
1: then. So there were a few... Like in the sort of the very first dot-com boom in the U.S., so this is, you know, sort of think about the time that we started, so Mm. 99, 2000. Yes, there were. So there was, I remember there being one called Beauty Jungle in the States. There was another one called, what was it called, Mm gloss.com maybe. Mm. So there were a few doing it in the U.S. I would look at those and go, yeah, like, look what you're doing, but you don't actually have enough information mm. here. You're not listing the ingredients of things. How are you helping people make decisions, blah, blah, blah. So I, I guess I would look at those websites and go, okay, but there's still a lot of things that are missing from the customer experience. It was like they were trying to just kind of replicate the department store experience, but online I thought, oh, no, I don't want to do that.
0: Right. So, so you- I, always
1: had, I always had a vision of what I wanted customers to be able to
0: do which was what
1: I wanted them to be able to make good decisions with all the information that they needed. So what I didn't like was how people felt and, and kind of accepted feeling a bit duped. By the beauty industry and being dependent only on sort of, you know, marketing information and, and people back then didn't understand ingredients. They didn't understand how things worked. They didn't understand what would need to be in a product for it to work. Like there just wasn't a lot of, mm. there just wasn't a lot of good information. And I think all of that contributes to people feeling like they're being sold a bit of a lie or, or you know, and, yeah. and that. And that was just sort of what people accepted. It was the dream
0: um, of of looking the way, you know, Lauren correct. Hutton or whoever some of those supermodels were in those days. Looking correct. like that, selling the froth.
1: That's right, selling the froth, but always kind of knowing it wasn't really achievable either. And that, for me, was disappointing because I knew that there were products that worked. But, you know, I mean, they still wouldn't make you look like Lauren Hutton, but <laughs> you could look like you,
0: yeah. but, you know... But fab. So you actually wanted to make it more accessible and more real information to arm people to make good choices.
1: Absolutely. And and you can still see that coming through in a lot of what we're doing today. You know, we show real people in all of our content and how things actually look. I mean, I could never, I still can't understand why mascara ads are so frequently, you know, sort of photoshopped and airbrushed. It's like, why don't you just show me how it looks? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just a proper before and after. That's all anybody wants to say. Yeah. You know? what, what is this actually going to do when I buy it? So that was really, and and I guess if you think about it, that's actually quite a disruptive sort of mindset mm. when you think about, you know, trying to change the beauty industry in that way, which I, did, I probably Definitely. didn't really appreciate at the start of the journey.
0: Yeah. I mean, to be clear, was are you saying no one else in Australia was really doing what you were doing to uh, both amalgamate several brands under one roof or one brand online? So I'm not talking about the Meccas and, and some of those others in bricks and mortar, but also you were innovating a in how you were selling these products and trying to perhaps move away from that pure luxury, unattainable vision of what women should look like.
1: That's right. I wanted beauty to be very attainable and very accessible and something that was, you know, fun and a positive experience
0: for everybody. So did word of mouth work and when did you start growing fast?
1: It worked very slowly, Helen, (laughs) very slowly. (laughs) And
0: and painfully, I'm sure.
1: (laughs) Yeah, look, and, and, and I mean it did work because, you know, every week we'd have a few more orders than last week, but it was certainly not a story of, you know, overnight success or that kind of, you know, hockey stick growth, not like it was just slow gradual growth year on year on year for the first, you know. 10, 12
0: years or so. Do you remember what your revenue was in perhaps that first year or two? Oh,
1: gosh. I reckon our oh, first it would have been hardly anything. I don't know, maybe 60 grand. Mm. The next year it was maybe 300. Well, that's good growth.
0: But it was great growth.
1: It just was still not very much, that's all.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so just really briefly, the dot-com crash obviously came in really not long after 2000. Did it affect you or were you still perhaps too small for it to affect you?
1: We were too small, so we'd never raised any capital Mm. and we hadn't sort of set up a big cost base or anything like that, so we were actually fine. And if anything, because there was, well, let me see, what happened not long after we launched, I think David Jones launched beauty online. And we thought, oh no, they're going to crush us. And I think there was another Australian beauty startup that launched maybe not long after we did too and and they had funding. And we thought, oh no, oh well, you know, it was worth a punt. And as it turned out, because we'd always set up with that very low cost space, we were able to continue to grow slowly and organically, whereas the other businesses that had scaled up, I guess, too quickly, weren't able to maintain that that cost base. And so David Jones actually shut down its online store. I don't know, maybe we're the the Stephen Bradbury of of online stores, perhaps (laughs) we just just stayed up the longest. and I guess that's where, why we are where we are.
0: So when did it really start to grow sustainably and profitably? I mean, growth probably was there, but, you know, it doesn't always mean profitability is there. And when did you think, oh, look, this is actually really going to work?
1: Well, profitability always had to be there because we didn't have any external funding so we couldn't actually afford to burn cash. Right. So the business is always profitable from the get-go. I was very, very poor for the first few years and did not buy any clothes and basically all I would ask any, you know, my parents or grandparents or whoever for, for every birthday and Christmas was just, could you give me, you know, clothing vouchers so oh, that I can really? clothe myself? I was really poor because it, we, we just, you know, sort of only ever lived on what, profit the business could deliver and so that's that's i guess sort of the discipline that bootstrapping teaches you is to to look at every single expenditure going okay how is this going to add value and if it isn't then you don't spend it
0: Mm. Well, before we get on to sort of the second decade, perhaps the growth decade, exponential growth sure. decade of, of a door, just take me back to your early life. You said you grew up in Tassie. Was mm-hmm. your family in business? Were they entrepreneurs? Were they retailers?
1: They were none of those things, no. My parents were both social workers. So so no, we didn't we did not have an entrepreneurial bone in our in our <laughs> family body. So it's Yes there's no there's no there's none of those sorts of classic stories of you know lemonade stands or or anything like that it was that was just not something that our family did and and I always just assumed that the way my life would go is that I would work hard at school so that I could get into a good university and then work hard so that I could get a good job and that's that's how things would go
0: Yeah
1: and so that which you know it's quite funny now because I have I have two brothers and a sister and and we're
0: actually all quite entrepreneurial. So I don't know where it came from. Extraordinary. So do you think you're a risk taker? I mean, where do you think the backing yourself came from? Good question. I
1: I think the thing that my parents always really did give us was that, you know, a good sense of security in the sense that, they fully wanted to encourage us to be whatever we wanted to be. And they never told us that we couldn't do anything. They were always very encouraging and supportive. And, you know, even when I said to them, I'm going to drop out of law. And then even when I said to them, hey, I'm going to, you know, quit my job and become an internet entrepreneur, they said, okay. (laughs) And I very much always had a sense that, to fail at things was would be okay and it wasn't like anyone would you know be upset with me or not love me and and I guess I kind of always had that sense of of a bit of a safety net in you know okay well I guess I'm going to try something brave and if it doesn't work out I guess I can always go home and live with mum and dad.
0: Well exactly so that that sense of emotional freedom i guess really to think that look they'll still love me whether i fail at this or not what's the worst that can happen
1: unconditional love is a pretty is a pretty spectacular thing to give your kids and it's certainly what i'm aiming for with with my kids i think they also too gave us a bit of grit in the sense that they encouraged us to be quite independent mm. so when i decided to move to melbourne to go to uni i would fully you know the the understanding was that i would do that under my own steam if this was my choice then i needed to make it work and i needed to go and get a job to be able to pay my rent mm. and that you know they weren't going to sort of pay for me or you know buy me a car or anything like that it was you know i needed to be able to make that happen and that was I mean from the time that i was well i think as soon as we were when, when you're allowed to start working when you're a kid i think it was like 14 and nine months and so from that time it was like right okay well you don't need an allowance anymore you can go and get a job
0: yeah and yeah
1: so we were yeah I, I think there's there's definitely a good work ethic in a sense that you know independence is really important and that you you know and that you can do this you can do hard things
0: yeah. Kate, back to the business journey. I mean, you said it was it was quite a struggle for a number of years to get people to come to the site, but also mm. to get consumers to come to the site, but also to win over... Products and brands Beauty to say, brands, look, yeah. this is another channel for you to sell. I, 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 you know, you're not cannibalizing department stores, you're adding to them. But what was the game changer, I guess, that either a, a customer contract or something that really caused a step change upwards? Oh, look, I don't know that there was any one
1: moment that you could point to and go, that's the day when it all became different. It was just quite a slow and gradual incremental thing. And so each new brand that we managed to sign up would bring new customers, of course, cause there would be people interested in buying that brand. And also each new brand we signed up would in turn, maybe bring one other brand who would look at that brand as as something, you know, aspirational or at, or at least you know in their in their kind of competitor set and and help to kind of a bit of social proof i suppose if they could see that other brands that they respected were doing this then maybe it was okay for them too and it was just slowly 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 building up that trust with customers building up that trust with brands and and that's really why you know there there aren't any shortcuts to trust you just have to do everything right for a really long time that's actually the only way to do it.
0: Was there a really tough nut to crack in that sense, in terms of a brand that you really wanted?
1: Well, it took me fourteen years to get a contract with the Estee Lauder Group. Wow! So, so we, that was that took until two thousand and fourteen. So that was that was certainly a story of persistence, but. I absolutely understand that because for those sorts of brands where you're talking about, you know, global heritage Mm. brands, the biggest asset they have is their brand equity. And they're not going to trust just anybody with that. You know, we really had to prove to them that we could do something for them that their other partners couldn't and that customers were, you know, interacting and engaging with us in a way that was, you know that was respectful of of the brand's heritage but also brought something new mm. and i think that's i mean that's one of the reasons why adore is where it is today in terms of all of the growth that we've had in the last few years is that we have yes built up those relationships with both our customers and our brand simultaneously and there's very high engagement on both sides
0: yeah kate did you ever come close to failure or have some fails in what you tried
1: oh god yes so many times goodness all the time yeah absolutely (laughs) absolutely and look there were many times where there were disasters or where there were near disasters it was actually when we started growing fast just probably Maybe 2012, 2013. So it was right before we raised some capital, and there were a few times where we nearly ran out of money. So that was Mm. that was certainly pretty scary, considering that was you know my house and and everything on the line. I guess failure is is a thing that I think you have to expect when you're doing things that are new or that nobody's done before, because some of it is going to work and some of it is not. So it's kind of the way that we still approach everything at Adore is assuming that some of the stuff that we do will not work or that we'll need to change it up a bit or we'll need to iterate on it. And, and it's more about how can I find out, how can I find that out quickly um, and how can I find that out without betting the farm on it? So I don't actually see failure necessarily as a bad thing. It's just it's a necessary thing.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like you know you you've learnt a lot from failure, and you don't necessarily well, you learn. crumble yes, in a course. heap and say, "Oh, I'm walking away from this."
1: Well, you can crumble in a heap for a minute. <laughs> um, you can you can you know have your half an hour under the doona, and then you got to get out again, right?
0: Yeah. Did you ever you personally want to walk away?
1: Gosh, yes. Yes. I, yeah. Of course. Really? I mean, you know. Every week there'd be a moment <laughs> where you're like, oh, God, I can't I can't do this. I can't, I can't. It's too scary. It's too hard. So, yeah, a lot. So what do you think pushed you on
0: or spurred you on?
1: Oh, I don't know. I think I'm just, this must be it, somewhere in my core, very stubborn. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it is that sense of, well, if I'm going to fail, I'd like to go down fighting. And it was actually (laughs) when I saw, I don't know if you've, you know, read much Brene Brown, but I remember, you know, seeing her TED talk for the first time a few years ago and she really enunciated it beautifully when she talks about, you know, daring greatly and and it's that, I think it's a a Roosevelt quote, you know, the, the man in the arena and I, you know, obviously like to think about it as the woman in the arena. But if you are going to go and, you know, Dear greatly with your life you will probably get kicked around a bit and you know you'll need to get up again and again but isn't that better than spending your whole life wondering what would have happened if you'd just been brave
0: enough yeah so how did you manage that and was it sort of what you're talking about is close to financial failure how did you manage through that
1: look you you know, those little half hour under the doona or in, in James and in my case, it was often going out and sitting in the car park and having a bit of a cry in the car and then going, okay. <laughs> oh, I'm laughing now, but I'm
0: sure it was incredibly painful <laughs> oh, it then. It wasn't
1: funny. It wasn't funny at the time. But then going, okay, come on, you know, let's hustle. Let's, you know, just let's get together and, mm. and you know, we'll get the team together and we'll brainstorm and we'll come up with something. And somehow we always did, you know, just just a little something to, you know, boost sales up enough that week that we could, you know, make payroll yeah. next week. And, and of course we couldn't, you know, and I think that is the hard and, and sort of lonely part sometimes about being a founder is that you can't necessarily share all of your stress with the team. You know, you sort of, it's a little bit like parenting in the sense that you need to, you know, you actually need to carry most of the weight of that, but you can certainly Get your team together and and try and get as you know as many brains in the room as you can and just try and come up with something and i guess we've always you know at a door kind of prided ourselves on being pretty creative and having a lot of hustle and if we need to get something going then we've always we've always been able to do that maybe yeah. these are the years where we hone that skill right so maybe that's that's the good thing that comes out of adversity is is that sense of of hustle, but also sense of control, I suppose, in some ways. Yeah. You know, you, you can do something. There's never, there's never nothing you can do.
0: Kate, how much innovation do you think you instigated? I mean, certainly to start with, you did because no one else was doing it. But over the years, has that been important to you?
1: I think it's been really important. Yeah, of course. I mean, if we want to change the way that customers interact with the beauty industry, then we have to be very innovative. So we try all kinds of things, you know, and I mean, off the top of my head, you know, being a retailer with a content strategy is actually pretty revolutionary in the sense of in, in the way that we've integrated kind of almost media capabilities into into what we do. So, you know, we have one of the top beauty podcasts in the country which which is pretty amazing as you know helen because you can't pay somebody to download a podcast yeah there's no you know amount of advertising that you know you can i mean you can certainly tell people about it but they for them to download it and then put it in their ears and spend half an hour listening to it there's no other way to do that aside from create content that you know adds value to your consumers' lives, mm. and so I think that's actually extraordinarily rare for a retailer to have those capabilities. So I think that's that's pretty innovative. i mean there's there's certainly lots of things that we've done from a technical standpoint that so, some of them will i'll I'll sound like I'm talking jargon if I go into it too much, but in terms of you know I mean we've actually built like a machine learning AI engine that aims to make both our product recommendations and our content recommendations much more relevant for every single customer and so we we launched our new app just before christmas it's an ios and android app and that's actually powered by our Beautywise recommendation engine so so what it looks like for you will be different to what it looks like for me because we try and, and use all those 20 years of experience that we have in the beauty industry to try and give much more relevant
0: content and relevant results so tailored tailored to each consumer
1: well that's right i mean because really what we're trying to do here and we're trying to do it in any number of different ways but really what we're trying to do is to help help our customers find the products that are going to really work for them or that are going to make them feel great and so if for instance you know if we've got a customer who's not the least bit interested in wearing makeup why would we be telling them about makeup all the time you know, it's because then otherwise you start going back to kind of you know the old way of the beauty industry where you know where they might start to think oh well like do i have to be wearing makeup should i be doing that and and our whole vibe is or well, whatever makes you feel like the best version of yourself. If you don't want to wear makeup, then goodness, we're certainly not going to tell you to. The only thing we're going to tell you to do is wear sunscreen because we're in Australia and that's very important, but anything else is completely up to you. And so that's why it's really important to personalize that experience for everybody.
0: Mm, I think that's a perfect place to take a break. In part two of our chat next week, Kate Morris explains how they dealt with massive growth years. She talks of lessons from selling to and later buying back a stake in a door to Woolies and why she and her partner James floated her beloved business baby. I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into Into an empire.